1: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Glenn Moore of World Soccer, and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. We've had the Invincibles. How about Manchester City as the Inevitables? I wish I could claim I came up with that line. It was from David Priest, friend of the pod, and it sums them up perfectly. City are remorseless in investigating and exploiting weakness. The pressure they exert is irresistible. Talk about a quadruple is growing in volume and intensity. So, Glenn, will Sunday's Manchester derby effectively confirm their fifth Premier League title in a decade
0: well, personally, I think it's already been confirmed about a couple of weeks ago. I mean, we're now counting down the days, aren't we? It's astonishing when you think this was the season when it was all wide open and you know so many changes of leadership. I think when City went top, they were the ninth different leader. And since they went top, They've stayed top. They've just kept winning and winning and winning. And everyone else has had mixed results. Look at the table where it flashed up a match of day last night. You know, there's, there's five green Ws. And obviously, that will be 20 green Ws for City. And everyone else is, is a patchwork of colours. There's only about another two teams have even won three of the last five games. So they've gradually pulled away from everybody. It's astonishing how how quickly the season's been transformed from this sort of grand national type uh, everybody falling over, everybody crashing into each other. to suddenly, you just got this uh, guard tearing away, with leaving the rest in his wake.
1: Yeah, you talk about domination by colours, but also by numbers as well. Richard, you know, City have got twenty-one more games in which to win the quadruple. They're fourteen points clear, with eleven Premier League games to play. Twenty-one or uh, twenty-one wins on the bounce. They haven't trailed for a single minute in their last nineteen games. You know, surely with those numbers, history beckons, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, when when you put the numbers out there on, on paper, it is remarkable, and it's it's, it's just from where they were around like, November time when they were, I say, languishing in tenth almost. I mean, the the consistency which they've shown has just been incredible, and a big part of it, of course, is their you know their their strength and depth. You know, they've got a really deep squad full of quality to. Top top class players in every single position, and and that does take its toll, especially when you're say you know the way they play. You know, first of all, you know, they they press really high, of course, but also the way they suffocate teams with their possession play. It allows them to stay fresh because they always have the ball; they're not chasing the ball. And um, you know, ultimately their opponents do tire, especially in this season of all seasons, where um, you know, the games are coming thick and fast, and fatigue is is high on the agenda. You know Manchester City are able to stay fresh by one rotating, but also two. As I say, the fact that they keep the ball so well will tire teams out, and you know they just keep knocking down the door and, and keep winning games.
1: Yeah, Richards is right to actually underline that quality of their rotation. You know, if you look at it, Glenn, Phil Foden sat out the last two games. Uh, do you expect to see him back in on Sunday? And give us a a sense of of how you think he's progressed over, say, the last
0: year? Well, I do. It's, um, I mean, you're right, it's hard to tell. I mean, you look at a couple of years ago, well, last year, you think one of the reasons why Liverpool ran away from City was the fact Laporte was injured. Well, he's had a kick this year. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, they, and, and they've stopped conceding goals. And I mean, we call it in the Fantasy League Pep Roulette every week. Who's playing now? It's almost impossible to pre-plan Pep's teams. Odeus normally plays. And Foden, I expect, they'll come back. And... One of the great things about having such depth is he has been able to play Foden here and then leave him out and then play him and leave him out. Where you look at someone like Marcus Rashford, who admittedly is a bit older and has played a bit more, but he's played almost every game for United this year. Mason Greenwood has had spells when he looked like he needs a break, but you can't necessarily... I know he's played less often, but, you know, he's been able to... Foden's always hungry and always fresh when he comes in because he's not been playing game after game after game. With that tremendous depth they've got, I mean, you know, you take out Cancelo, you bring in Walker. Gundogan gets injured, you've got cover. Aguero, he hasn't scored a goal all season. And yet, it doesn't seem to be a problem. De Bruyne was injured for the start of that chunk of 20 games. Yeah, they're probably the best player in the league. Um, City just gone with it. It's incredible that the depth they've got. So
1: given given that, Richard, do you expect Pep Guardiola to, to quietly prioritise the Champions League now the Premier League is sorted to all intents and purposes, and and if we look at it, the League Cup final against Spurs is a one-off, which will take care of itself.
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we all know that the Champions League is is definitely a priority for Manchester City. We know that is something that, that they do want, and I think it's something that uh, everyone expects them to uh, you know to at least compete in. Uh, as you say, with the league wrapped up, they they can really focus on that. And it's something which, you know, they they should be doing better in, as as we discussed quite a lot. So I think, you know, especially this season, there's, I know we said this last season, I think I said this last last time in the pod as well, that, you know, we thought last season was City's time. But this season, more than ever, it surely has to be. Especially when you look at the other big teams in inverted commas around Europe aren't maybe playing as well as maybe they can be. Of course, Bayern Munich are doing well, but not not the same as they were last season, for example. So when you're looking at that, like, you know, competitors for the European crown all, all hours point to Manchester City so yeah I, I think that that's the one that they'll be definitely going for of course at the League Cup final it's a one-off game anything can happen and it does have the potential to be taxing I mean of course Spurs were the last team to beat Manchester City of course but um you know in the reverse fixture <laughs> Manchester City beat them quite comfortably so it, it's probably something where if it goes the same way as the league game went it's, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion. But of course, it's a one-off game. We know Mourinho's record in finals. We know what Spurs can do. So they had the potential to be taxing, but I, I can't see Manchester City losing that game. And I'll be very surprised if they at least don't get to the final in the Champions League this year.
1: Mm. Looking at, at Sunday, Glenn, and it's something you, you hinted at in your, your last answer, you know, Manchester United... They look way off at the moment. And in many ways, that was such a desperate game at Palace. It was, you know, it was a mercy that we couldn't see very much through the mist. You mentioned Rashford being overtaxed. You've got Bruno Fernandes also being run into the ground. Is that part of United's problem this season? And is that a question of squad management or is it just squad depth?
0: I think it's, as much as anything, it's probably depth in the case of particularly Fernandez, because there is no one else at United do to, to replace him. When you think most of their best performances and most of the, he's the one who keeps pulling them out of the fire. And there was a period when he didn't seem to be doing it quite as much against the better teams, but even though he's doing that, he has done more recently. Therefore, I could imagine if you're Solskjaer, you're picking your team and you think, oh, I don't really want to leave him out. You know, you can see why you want to play him, because there is always this pressure to win every game. The In terms of the other players, maybe, I mean, yeah, you know, Donny Van Beek, you do wonder why they bought him.
1: Well, I think <laughs> there, there should be a missing persons alert for him, shouldn't there? You...
0: Yeah, I mean, I know someone else, that, I don't know what he looks like. Well, I can tell you what, he's probably got square bottom because he spends all his time sitting on the bench. <laughs> um, and you do wonder about it. I mean, you sort of think, well, OK, they they haven't scored for three games, but they haven't conceded for three games, so they've stopped conceding. But it's not quite the short blanket syndrome situation. But I don't think they've changed the approach. I think they're just losing... You know, that inspiration, that ability to break size down. And that largely comes down to Fernandes maybe li- being a little bit fatigued and a bit tired and Cavani a little bit of an injury. Martial hasn't really looked that great. You, know, you have a situation whereby they just don't seem to be able to break down teams who aren't prepared to give them space to play in. And obviously Crystal Palace are a classic example of a team who do not give you space to play in.
1: Yeah, there also seem to be almost like a mental issue there that – Almost not quite going through the motions, but almost an acceptance of, of of inferiority. Have City got into their heads? Do you think, Richard?
2: I wouldn't go that far into saying got into their heads, but I do feel that looking at United, as Glenn alluded to, you know, a lot of you know when when United do break teams down is a lot. A lot of it does come down to individual brilliance, and you know, as as Glenn said, you know, if, if it's not Bruno coming up with it and it's Rashford or Maybe Greenwood or as would say Martial, you know, very very rarely this season, of course, or, or Pogba. But is again this as we said many times before, is, you know, kind of an issue with the kind of cohesive unit. So when teams do sit deep and are difficult to break down, if that moment of individual brilliance doesn't come, you're kind of questioning where where's the goal coming from? And as you say, maybe it's that kind of mental block as to say, you know, if, if Bruno isn't the one to kind of Break the team down with you know with a, with a through ball or a goal himself. Who else is it going to come from? You know, is it going to come you know from 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 that wide? Is it going to come from Rashford? It, it just begs the question. So I think maybe that's more of an issue in terms of where where's that kind of individual brilliance going to come from? More so than kind of Manchester City gets into their heads.
0: I think the, I think the mental side is more a case. of, if you think back, they haven't won the championship now since 2013. I'm not sure there's hardly anybody there who has won the title at United. Let's um, got work some way back, I guess. There well, are one or two players that have won championships. I mean, obviously, uh, Matic and Mata at Chelsea. But they haven't got that situation whereby, say, City have where teams, they expect to win the championship these days. They're going out there under pressure to, they are expected to win, but I don't think they expect to win it themselves because they haven't been doing it. Yeah, you know, they've gone through all these managers, and therefore, from the mental side of it, there's it, it, that hurdle to overcome. That first title is always the hardest, you know, t- to get. And for most of that team, they're looking for that first title.
1: Yeah, so that obviously points out the fact that you need, <clears throat> excuse me, serial winners, maybe even to be drafted in. In terms of the way this team will evolve, Richard, do you see Dean Henderson long term as the goalkeeper? And also, they've been linked with uh, FAL... Varane from Real Madrid do you think he'll make a good partner for for Harry Maguire and you know I suppose in essence what I'm saying is they really need to sort the defense out
2: no certainly you know especially this season you know united conceded far too many goals you know one of the highest in, in the top half if not the highest Yes, I do feel that uh, Dean Henderson is is the kind of future for United. I mean, they've invested in him heavily with his new deal, of course, and £100,000 a week, I guess, which obviously shows that, you know, they see him, they, you know, they do see his value. And especially with De Gea's iffy form of late you know, Henderson does bring, does bring his own value. You know, he commands the box well. He, you know, he's he's not too bad with his feet, although that can improve. You know, he, he he's good from crosses. He's got great communication as well. And, you know, having a, a top goalkeeper, you know, a decent goalkeeper behind you, it does help to breed confidence throughout the side. And it was something that the Gea did have, you know, that kind of air of invincibility before. But um, as he's kind of become a bit more shaky, we are seeing a bit more shakiness in, in the defence. So... That's from a goalkeeper's perspective. And with Varane, you know, as Glenn alluded to, again, talking about winners, Varane is a serial winner. With all he's won at Real Madrid, titles, World Cups, Champions Leagues, that experience will be invaluable to the United dressing room should he join. Of course, we know about his quality as well. He's he's quick. He reads the game really well. And we'll compliment Harry Maguire. Because I feel while Maguire is a decent centre-back, I don't think he's the main centre-back of the two although he's been kind of propelled into the kind of number one centre-back. So I feel with Varane next to him, he'll improve as well. And um, we'll definitely see improvements in, uh, you know, United's defence overall.
0: I think they'd be a good pair because Varane's got the pace, obviously, that Baguio and Lindorff lack a little bit. So, And it also, if you look at that back four now, I mean, uh, Shaw's, Recovery from the Merino years has been very impressive. If you've got Henderson and goal at twenty-three, Wan Bissaka twenty-three, Shaw twenty-six, McGraw and Ver- Verand twenty-seven, potentially. I know these things don't always work out this way, but potentially that's a back four that could be in place for three or four years. You know, uh, playing every week, week in, week out. You know, uh, coming to its its peak years. Yeah, yeah. As I said
1: right at the uh, top of the show, uh, you know, this is going to be City's fifth Premier League title in a, in a decade. Who do you think will meet the challenge that this represents? If we're saying that United are, are far from the finished article, how long would it take, for instance, Thomas Tuchel, to, to solve that £200 million jigsaw at, uh, at Chelsea?
0: Well, he's made a very impressive start so far. There are obviously players there. You know, it's um I think we looked early on in the season thinking maybe some of those players hadn't been signed, we were thought how they might end up playing together. Clearly, you know, he has um more awareness of some of those players than Frank having been working in the Bundesliga in terms of the new guys coming in. You, if if Werner starts scoring, big if, but you know, he has scored a lot of goals in the past. And yeah, you know, we saw him last year in the Bundesliga, he looked fantastic, and that's a strong league. It's not like he's come from the Air Divisa or or you know or Belgium. There are the players there. There's lots of young players. There's lots of talent there. You can certainly see Chelsea. The, the, I think that most of the tools are there to become a good side. You say, the same could be said for one or two of those teams. Out. What I think the issue is, though, City have got such depth, depth and such dominance. It's more of a question: Will City beat themselves through complacency, through focusing on, so maybe the Champions League, perhaps, or even like you know, we're going from this season straight into the Euros, straight back into another season, post um, tournaments. Uh, seasons are always difficult for clubs with everybody in those tournaments and the next year might be even more complicated because obviously you've got the world cup the Qatar world cup falling right in the middle of it you know you'd imagine virtually everyone in the city squad will be in it and disappearing off to you know two months without playing so that's going to be another very weird season like this one i mean obviously the argument is in the weirdest of seasons the um the 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 clubs with the greatest depth uh prosper most i guess what's been shown this year but it might be that such as City's current squad, it's up to them to beat themselves.
1: Yeah, it, when you put it like that, it does seem that almost we're flogging these players to death, aren't we, uh, Rich?
0: Yeah, but, you know,
2: as, as uh, you know, it's been alluded to before, the kind of fixer congestion this season and next season is, is, is incredible. So, you know, as, as we've mentioned, the teams that have the strength and depth... Will prosper. We've seen that with Manchester City. It's just really, it's just interesting. You know, we're talking about who's going to topple them. You know, when when Pep signed his new deal in November, I think, and, and City were in tenth, and we were thinking, you know, was, was it the right thing? Things weren't looking too great. And what 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 Pep's done, I guess, over the past years, you know, helped helped the team to evolve. And I think that's going to be his challenge moving forward. I mean, the question was, you know, they need a new centre back. They went outside Ruben Diaz, and he's been a revelation. Now it's a case of maybe do they need a new centre forward? Well, they can go out into the market and they have their their financial clout to to go and get another top class striker. Should they need to, and they've got a relatively young side as well. So when we're talking about who can topple them, I think as as, as Glenn said again, it's more a case of, you know, it's whether City will, will beat themselves. But I only expect them, especially now with Pep settled as well in his future, to to really evolve. And you know, you mentioned Chelsea there. I mean. Tuchel's only got an 18-month contract, so he's going to have to hit the ground running. And while he started well, again, with all the fixtures coming up, he probably doesn't have the time that he wants and needs to really coach his team how he wants them. So, you know, he can only do what he can, kind of within those two three days in between games. So it will be difficult for him, but as you say, with all that money spent, you do expect better from them. So, yeah, I think next season will be
0: interesting, you know, with that in mind. You would expect City to freshen up a little bit in the summer. Imagine that team with Messi in it or Haaland.
1: Well, if it's Haaland, I think everyone can go home, frankly. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and I suppose and to your point, actually, Rich, you know, uh, Thomas Tuchel believes he can reach City's standards, but will he get the time? And even he smiles at that question, so he knows what he's what he's put himself into. Again, almost Chelsea and the culture there—is it almost? Does it make them, you know, is it its own worst enemy in many ways?
2: Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. And it, if you look at the track record of the kind of hiring and firing history that they've had, they can turn around and say, well, that's brought us success. And that's obviously a blueprint which they're happy to go down. But um, as he's saying, this time, obviously, post-Lampard and with all the signers that they've made, they do need an element of consistency there. And with Tuchel, obviously, a big-name manager, of course you know, maybe he should he should be given time. I guess Lampard could have been given more time as well just to kind of put his stamp on things. We, we've seen it already, I guess, with new formation and double pivot in centre midfield. It seems to be working well, but it's it's, it's, it's going to need time it's just, uh, you know, in order to kind of get the team to gel together how he wants
0: them. Is it a success? Two titles in 10 years, given the results of Chelsea? Has it been a success? I, I know the argument Chelsea fans always say, well, it works because we keep winning things. But really, I mean, two titles in, in ten years for the amount of resources that Chelsea had. I don't think the turnover managers has helped, to be honest.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm never I've never been a great believer in creative tension, which I think is a nonsense. And I, you know, I do think, you know, spe- especially you know, Mourinho's management style, is it can become toxic very quickly. Uh, obviously, you know Carlo Ancelotti you know, did well there. We have got Everton; he's taking Everton to the bridge on on Monday. When we look at modern football, we almost gloss over the huge sums of money that it involves. If you think of Everton, they've spent nearly half a billion pounds trying to turn themselves round. I suppose the question is, uh, Rich, how much more is needed? You know, they presumably look at it and you think probably they need a new goalkeeper, Seamus Coleman, can't keep going forever.
2: Yes, as again, you, you know, Everton, you see potential there. And this season in particular, they seem to be progressing well. I think the issue has always been consistency. But, I mean, you, the, the players you mentioned, fair enough. But there are players who do seem to be getting better under Ancelotti. You know, likes of Tom Davis has had a good season. In defence, you've got likes of Holgate, Keane, Mina are doing okay. Of course, Hammers is exciting, of course. But, obviously, Dominic Calvert-Lewin as well has as improved on Ancelotti's watch. So, we see a team which is improving, but they're still... So far off, even getting to the top four, maybe top six is, is their is their hope. So, they've still got a lot to do, of course. You know, they've got Dean at left back who's obviously signed a new deal, which is huge for them. New stadium on the horizon, but yeah, they still need more because you know, the quality of the top six in particular is so high now that it's, it's, it's going to take a lot for them to even infiltrate that, let alone be you know, consistent top players at that level. Mm. How much.
1: Um, This might actually sound a daft question which wouldn't be a first in my case but when you think about it Glenn how decisive these days is the quality and the experience of the manager and you know if you're talking about quality and experience you're talking about Ancelotti aren't you?
0: You are, and I, I do I agree with Richard. I think he has improved individual players, which is always a sign of a good coach as well as a good manager. There is this in, weird inconsistency about Everton, particularly at home. I think they're one of the clubs that very much missed having fans. You know, we, we've mentioned this in the past. There's an element, but you look at, I think what they really miss is pace in that side. Godfrey's been a terrific signing and has had the pace at the back. There was a stat, I think, watching the game of the week uh, on Monday, the lack of counter attacking. The goals they produce that they do lack a little bit. They lack a lot. Certainly, lack pace in midfield, definitely. Therefore, they can't get up quick enough to support sometimes. But there is this inconsistency. You feel because of who Angelotti is, you feel he will get it right, and you yeah, and there is a trust in him. I think among the Everton fans that there wouldn't necessarily be managers of, of lesser repute. Uh, yeah, a sense that yeah, we are lucky to have him, and let's give him time. Uh, and I do feel that yeah, that half a billion pounds, a lot of it was spent before he came. Some of it have been recouped on people like Lukaku. So it's not a net spend. And his spending has been, I think, more judicious. I mean, it's a question, yeah, can they keep Hamas Rodriguez fit? Did they Can they, did one or two other players keep them fit? I mean, where's a cover when Lewin's out? They haven't really got it at the moment. I mean, uh, Josh King, decent signing. You wouldn't really necessarily want him leading your line in a, in a top six Premier League team. But the, the certainly, I think in his case, he will get time. He was talking about wanting to be there when the new ground is opened. I think at the moment, most Everton fans will say, "Yeah, we're happy with that."
1: Yeah, talking of consistency, what about Leicester? Rich, they're at Brighton on Saturday. Is that game going to be critical for both of them? Because there was a sense, okay, they did well at Burnley last night to get the draw, but there is a sense in the last couple of weeks that Leicester have just lost that little edge, that that, that bit of momentum. I
2: feel uh, with Leicester, they've just been this season, especially, really unlucky. With injuries, uh, you know they've got eight first team players out currently. They've had so many throughout the season to key players. So consistently having to chop and change the formation, which they've done. They have played three at the back, four at the back at times, and of course change of personnel. It's obviously difficult to get that fluidity. Of course, they're still doing well, you know, up in third. But of course, if they lose and, and West Ham win, you know that 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 margin goes to one point. Uh, so they will want to avoid that. Kind of missing out on Champions League again, like they did last season, because uh, you know, although people say it's Leicester City, they they would be, they would have been disappointed of that. I think is a is a big uh, what's a big issue for them at the moment is that especially with Harvey Barnes and Madison out, they're, they're two fantastic creative players who have created a lot for Jamie Vardy, who's also not fit himself at the moment. You know, he's just coming back from an injury. You know, those three together. Score uh, scored just over fifty five percent of Leicester's goals this season, so it shows how integral they are to the team. Of course, I- Ian Atcho scored a great goal last night, but um, you know, again, can you trust him to lead the line if Vardy's out injured? Possibly not. So, I think they've been unlucky, but you know, they keep finding a way to kind of pull out results. Leicester, and although as you say, so many players out, they do have you know good quality within the side still. So. I do expect them to beat Brighton, you know, expected goals FC Brighton, who just love to miss chances <laughs> galore. And as a result of that, moving on to them, you know, they've been sucked right into the relegation relegation battle now. And um, it really is a must-win game for them. So it'll be an intriguing game, a game that I expect Leicester to win. But I think Brighton will be kicking themselves because if, if they, you know, taken their chances in all of those games... You know they they could be looking at mid table and 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 you know progressing from there, but as we speak, they're right in the middle of a relegation battle, and I just can't see things improving for them. I don't think they'll go down because they do have good players on the side, but those missing chances they just they need to they need to improve on that. It's getting silly now,
1: yeah, well, being able to take penalties might help them as well, mightn't it I suppose and in in a relegation battle, Glenn, you always look at you know course and distance. Teams, don't you? And Burnley are that. You know, you know what you're gonna get from them. Arsenal will know that. They're at turfmore in the BT sport game at Saturday lunchtime. Arsenal, are they ready for that sort of physical challenge, you know, that that they're obviously gonna get?
0: I think they're better equipped than they were during the season. Uh the win the winner of Benfica, I think, was a big win for them, but you know, having you know considered that goal when you're thinking Now, this really is a test of character here. And to come back from that the way they did, I think will give them a lot of confidence, a a lot of belief. They do appear... Quite fragile in confidence, uh, and and they, yeah, but we start winning games like that, and it does give you a bit of belief. And you've got one or two other different people appearing on the score sheet, so I think I think that will help. There's a little bit of inconsistency in selection at the back, which makes you wonder quite who they're going to play there. But they need you know, again, like like so many of these teams, you, you need to get your key players fit. People like Tierney have them fit and playing regularly. And the sense of, again, as we've mentioned with other teams, that some of the younger players like Smith Roby play too often. Because who else are you going to play? Uh, Having Udegaard come in obviously will help that. So that could be an interesting game. I mean, Burnley, I thought Burnley played very well last night Uh, with a particular second half, really um, showed a bit of vim about them and it could be a very interesting game actually they're a good contrast in styles which often leads to a better game than some of the games you have seen between the bigger clubs perhaps yeah and Burnley if they build on their last game and Arsenal too it could be quite an open uh, interesting game and Burnley's win sort of takes a bit of the pressure off them in terms of relegation you know, worries so you know, they they can relax a bit more on play and in terms of Arsenal they're still thinking given that the way teams above them are uh, performing that they still could get up there and get the shake up and try and get A place in Europe
1: yeah what about Mikel Arteta Rich? he was well. he played down the links to barcelona and i suppose when you look at what's going on there at the moment irrespective of their um, you know cup win last night why should he move there
2: exactly exactly i feel you know he's kind of in the middle of a of a long term project i guess that he sees at arsenal and you, you, you are kind of beginning to see arsenal mold into the way arteta wants to play which is why again uh, you know I, I can't see him going to Barcelona any time soon, especially, you know, for him personally, you know, all the issues that they've got off the pitch is a massive job, a massive, you know, repairing job on the pitch as well. So, you know, it'll be, well, I would find it a bit strange if he was to leave kind of mid-project at Arsenal to go to Barcelona in their current state. But yeah, you know, I think, as you say, he's in the middle of a, of a project at Arsenal, is moving probably slower than what the fans would expect. But as you say, it's similar to what I said before in terms of improving players. You know, the likes of Saka have uh, and Emil Smith have really common leaps and bounds under his watch. So and you know, they're exciting players and I think they're players who we all want to see do well. So, you know, you have to give Arteta a little bit of credit for that.
0: Let's be honest, I mean, I think players find it, I think everyone finds it hard to turn down people like Barcelona Real Madrid, but I mean Arteta's been linked with Barcelona is it because he used to play there. Clearly, the lesson for players now is play for a few big clubs and you'll get linked with them. I mean, you know, Pochettino obviously was at PSG. I mean, mm-hmm. Arteta, Kuma, and Barcelona. So, I mean, you look at someone like David Luis, perhaps when he becomes a manager, he could manage Chelsea, PSG, <laughs> Arsenal. Thiago Alcantara, he could manage Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Liverpool. I mean, these guys have got lots of possibilities when they retire now. Whereas, Paul Paul goals, he's only got Man United.
1: <laughs> I don't think he's got Man United, mate, either.
0: We would old him, didn't he? But, yeah. Uh,
1: what about, you know, I, I suppose you know, we, we're back about management again, aren't we? And it, it is such a fashion business. So, Glenn, let's look at Southampton and Ralph Hassenhall. One point out of 27, there's a sense that things could spiral out of control. Do you think the board... Could even panic if they lose again at Sheffield United on Saturday afternoon.
0: Well, it's possible. I mean, I think there's still a bit of a buffer, you know, from between them and the bottom. And also, there's, um, you know, you've got possibly Newcastle sort of slipping in before Southampton do, if anyone does. They have got a couple of big games come up with Sheffield United, and then Brighton's coming up afterwards. Again, number one, is we start to lose, lose those two and there will be worried. But, I mean, he's already survived two 9-0 defeats. Not, managed, not many managers survived one of those. So there's obviously <laughs> you know, faith in him and justified faith in him. You know, he's been very lucky with injuries. I think that has to be taken into account. Against that, though, I mean, you have to look at one or two of the players. I mean, Redmond, uh, you think there's a player with so much talent. Why does he so rarely produce it? Yeah, is that the system? Is it the coaching? Is it the player? Uh, There's one or two players like that. Uh, but again, yeah, Southampton are one of the clubs, so they keep selling good players. So it's always going to be difficult for the manager. Yeah, you know, he's, he's always bringing in and replacing players who've gone. And you say it looks like Ings. Yeah, you know, he may well go. He hasn't looked the same person since he came back from injury. So it's a, it's a difficult one. There's no guarantee if they got rid of him that they would improve dramatically. But certainly given the amount of money required, yeah, you know, amount of money involved in staying in the Premier League, yeah, you know, they they will be getting slightly nervous. And to be honest, you know, if you're the board, you should be asking those sort of questions at this stage. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come at the answer to the sacking, but you should be asking the questions.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it, Rich, that there seems to be absolutely no question of Chris Wilder being under any sort of pressure despite you know the likelihood of relegation, are they still capable of causing problems? I thought last night that the, the trademark defiance they came up with to protect that win against Villa did tell you that actually, probably deep down, they're saying, well, actually, we're not quite dead yet.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely spot on there. I feel like, you know, looking at yesterday's game, the way that they were dogged... They show that determination that's synonymous with them they they were brilliant and i think yeah maybe everyone will say that they're down but they're still gonna go down fighting which is what you'd expect from a chris wilder side and from a side who of course you know exceeded expectations last season and you know they they will not want to go down with a whimper you know we look at norwich last season for example i think they lost like their last six or seven games in a row and it was a bit embarrassing Whereas look at Sheffield United on the other hand, you know, they're always gonna compete, they're always gonna fight to the death to the final whistle. I think they were excellent yesterday, to be fair. They're excellent. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, with that mentality in mind, they will cause a lot of problems for other sides who are maybe looking to compete maybe for Europe or maybe even suck other teams into the relegation battle themselves. So yeah, they'll they'll definitely be a, a difficult opponent in, in the in the running because while I say people say oh they're that that they're down you know, they're still
0: going to battle to the end and and, and give you a hard game. Well, you mentioned Norwich. That's the best argument will for keeping Wilder. Look at the top of the championship at the moment. You know, they stay with Daniel Farker and it looks like they're coming straight back. Mm. Yeah, I, you
1: know, I, I'll put this as a bit more of a, another hospital pass question, Glenn, but um, with due apologies for asking it. Phil Jagielka, his sending off against Villa to me at least, was another absolutely terrible VAR-inspired decision. Are we almost becoming conditioned to those sort of decisions?
0: Uh, Richard, do you want this? (laughs) (laughs) No. um, I mean, I watched that. Was that a clear and obvious error? No. I'm a a fan of the principle of VAR, and what often gets overlooked is how many times it corrects bad errors that would have gone, you know, that would have... Happened otherwise. Uh, There've been quite, you know, offside goals, fouls not given, and so on. And that that gets overlooked. That's just accepted. We do see examples of it working. But what you, what I still think, given the amount of time we've now had it, I'm surprised it hasn't settled down better. I'm surprised we hadn't got to a situation where people were. Yeah, managing it better i think we are we may be moving to a situation whereby as indeed is the argument now in cricket you have specialists like you know in cricket they've got this issue, this issue with the third umpire not handling drs properly i think there may be an uh, maybe an argument at some stage you get the the people who are the var specialists i mean ideally obviously they would have had referee the high level experience so they know what's like to be in the middle and so on but there is a certain amount of how much is we refereeing, how much isn't... I was slightly surprised he gave it last night, having been called over and had a look, because referees, I have noticed, have become stronger at looking at the... You know, being sent over to have a look at it and said, no, no, I'm happy with my decision. I was right the first time. And I think that's been good. It was a difficult one. I, mean, I looked at umpteen angles last night. It's obviously a bad foul. Yeah, you know, he, he wasn't there. Would a defender got across? Possibly. How good a chance was it? It was still quite a long way out. You know, so... It, it's one of those ones that, had it played on, would he have got a shot off from a very good angle before he'd been tackled? Debatable. You could certainly, it's one of those ones where, had he sent him off straight away, I think we all would have said, yeah, okay, you can see that. Yeah, the question is, should VAR be re refereeing decisions that aren't clear and obvious errors? Yeah, I think the referee, on that case, you, you stand by the referee's decision.
1: Yeah, we well, I suppose we're on firmer ground. Richard, when we talk about an old journalistic staple, which is a training ground fallout, Newcastle. Yeah, papers full this morning of a big standoff between Matt Ritchie, who has seemed to be a bit of a combustible character, and Steve Bruce, who's been around the block and boxed quite a few rounds in, uh, in sparring, I would imagine. What does all that say about Newcastle? And it this sort of controversy comes at, absolutely the wrong time, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, the, the timing couldn't have been any worse. You know, they they are right in the mire, you know, two wins from 14. They're not playing well at all. You know, sometimes when, when you do hear of these uh, training ground bust-ups, you know, the, the old daddies, they always come out and say, oh, you know, shows that the players care and, and all of this and whatever. But I just feel like, obviously, as an outsider looking in, just, there's so much tension there. And obviously it spills over, which which is natural. It's just about how they how they um how they move forward from this now. Because, you know, sometimes these things can have a you know, they, they can galvanize the side, they can really bring people together after, you know, obviously after they've made up and whatever. But um I just can't see that happening at the moment. And I think it's an interesting one, kind of looking at a wider issue. You know, sometimes you know, as a result of the pandemic, you know, when teams normally mid-season might go away, maybe have team bonding and kind of come closer together that way. There's been no opportunity for that this season and not really an opportunity to do that again, even after this incident. So you're thinking of, OK, how are things going to be mended? It's only really going to be by good performances and going out on the pitch and, and getting results. But the, the way things are going and the way things seem to be, uh, you know, spiralling almost, I uh, can't really see things getting any better. And it could be one of those moments where you're thinking, yeah, that's a sign that they are in deep trouble and um, really difficult to see them getting out of it. As
0: I was going to say, training ground bus ups happen, you know, not as regularly as they used to, but still relatively regularly. But they tend to leak out from unhappy clubs. Having said that, the worst news in Newcastle this week is the injuries. I mean, they're best free attacking players and they're all out. Yep,
1: yeah, they are. And that's what I was about to say, actually, that. You know, essentially, what we've got is a perfect storm of injury and, and dissatisfaction, and as I said earlier, at the ro- the worst possible time, the implications of them losing at the Hawthorne on Sunday, Glenn, don't really bear thinking about, do they?
0: No, it's it's um. It's a, it's a terribly difficult time up there. You've got this sort of absentee owner. I, I noticed Lee Charlie Pant was at the training ground this week, you know, the, the owner's bag man. or well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't quite call, call him that. Um, <laughs> I, Lieutenant. You know, his eyes on the ground <laughs> would be a better phrase. And, yeah, Steve Bruce, clearly a large section of the, of the support don't want him anymore. I'm not sure some of the supporters ever did want him. I mean, I know he's a geordie boy, but he did manage Sunderland, which didn't help. And the team haven't been playing particularly brilliantly. They have, I feel, they have played with more energy and you know, attacking intent in more recent weeks. But yeah, you know, once you lose Wilson, Amir, and Max Milliman, yeah, you know, who's going to convert those chances? And then again for Bruce, yeah, you know, did he buy Joe Linton, or was he forced upon him? Yeah, you're going to be judged and hung on a play you didn't want necessarily. So it is very difficult. Again, the obvious thing to do there, if if it's true that the players want Graham Jones in and he is in situ and therefore it would be relatively cheap, would be to bring him in. But Steve desperately desperate needs a result.
1: Yeah, and Sam Allardyce would absolutely be loving it, wouldn't he, Rich?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, he, he'll, he'll be telling his, his players, you know, this week, you know, look at what's happening there. They are in free fall. You know, West Brom obviously not in a great position themselves, but three games unbeaten, of course, and you know are looking a bit more solid. Although they were lucky last week against Brighton, now this is a fantastic chance to really, really suck Newcastle in with them. And um, as as you say, Sam Allardyce has got the the kind of history of, of getting teams out of it. While I don't think, I mean, I think West Brom are a bit too far adrift of doing that. It will definitely apply the pressure to those around them. You know, the likes of Fulham as well, and and of course, you know. As you say, it's a proverbial six-pointer, isn't it? And, you know, it will have huge ramifications. So, yeah, as you say, I think things are looking better for West Brom. I don't think they'll get out of it, but he'll be loving the fact that there's discontent in Newcastle at the moment and he'll definitely be
0: using that to galvanise his squad. Because well, he was the first person that actually sacked, first manager that actually sacked, wasn't he? Yes, he I was. Know, yeah. yeah, he was. And then later said, I wish I sacked him earlier. <laughs>
1: Yes, revenge and dishes eaten cold, I think, probably comes to mind on that one. Glenn, talking of cold, uh, you were um, in the stands at Kings Meadow last night watching Chelsea in a pretty lively Women's Champions League tie against Atletico Madrid. You know, we've talked about a quadruple for Manchester City in the men's game. There's even now some talk of a quadruple for Chelsea in the women's game. Is that well-founded?
0: Well, they've got the Continental Cup final coming up, which they will, they ought to win against Bristol City, to be honest. So that's one in the bag. They're top of the league, so that's potentially two. Those City are, are coming on very strong now. Then we've got the FA Cup, which has barely started because of the pandemic and will run into um, next October, November, I think, by the time they get around to it. So clearly that's a long way off that one. And the Champions League, and they look as good as anybody in it. I, I do think Lyon are obviously still the team to beat. <clears throat> Haven't been as good this year as they have in the past. PSG have got stronger, you know, uh, Bayern, but you're looking at there aren't going to be many teams that will be better than Chelsea and Manchester City at the moment. I mean, in fact, the draw will be interesting to see who, you know, when, when it comes through. I mean, I think both these clubs will now get through. Um, City obviously 3 0 first leg lead last night against Fiorentina. Chelsea 2 0 lead against Atletico Madrid, and the and the second game's in Monza. So you'd fancy them both to go through, and then it's a question of who they then get in the last eight, as it were, can they avoid each other You know, primarily? And can they avoid Leon? But those, I would anticipate the win of the competition will probably come from one of those three teams because Wolfsburg aren't quite the force they were. Okay,
1: I'd like to finish, if I could, chaps, by just a, a skim through some different issues from international football. Rich, I'd like to start with the World Cup bid for 2030. Now we have got a desperately poor history in terms of bidding for that World Cup. We've got those tired old football's coming home slogans bouncing around the airwaves yet again. Two questions to you, really. One, what is the point of this bid apart from political vanity? And secondly, have we drawn any lessons whatsoever from the fiasco of the 2018 bid?
2: So, uh, drawing on, on the first question, can it be anything more than the kind of you know political point scoring thing? I mean, 2.8 million from the government to support the bids, uh, you know, is, is five or six times less than what the two the whole of the bid cost for the 2018 uh, World Cup that, that we did, which ultimately failed. As you say, I think we're, we're pretty much resigned to the fact that it would be difficult for it to come here, uh, you know, based on the past obviously it would be fantastic. I mean, you look at the Euros this summer, there are so many games being played in England anyway, semi-finals and final, that, you know, we've kind of got our fair share. I think if people were to kind of weigh up, what would they rather, a World Cup on home soil or grassroots, you know, investment, while it would be close, I think, of course, World Cup on home soil would be amazing. But, you know, looking at the longer term, grassroots does need to be invested in. So that's my take on that one. And then with the second question, she mentioned the whole football coming home thing. Obviously, it's fantastic and people get behind it. But, you know, the people who we need to persuade to, to vote for us don't like that. And um, mm-hmm. it's it's so easy to kind of go into those kind of slogans, especially at that at that level, the, uh, the political level, decision-making level. But, you know, if we are going to make a bid, we are, we are going to need to look at the kind of fiasco that happened before and, and really, you know, learn lessons from that. But it's not kind of gone off to the on the on the right foot if we are using those kind of slogans. Really, we know they rub people up the wrong way, so why why play into that? It's just so easy to go into those kind of old tropes again.
1: That's true, and I suppose I'm beginning to ask myself questions, Glenn, about the viability of international football in this new normal that we're going to have to deal with. You know, there are murmurs of a of a boycott for the. Qatar World Cup, certainly in Norway. I know that it's, it's, it's a really live issue there. Do you think we're at the stage in football's development where the power, both economic and emotional, of club football at the highest level almost overcomes international football and the traditional tribal loyalties that that, that, that exploits?
0: Well, I think they're linked in a way because you could tell by the impact that people think international football can have, the fact that, you know, the government are going, what is clearly just a bit of political... It's, it's another Garden Bridge, Boris Island um, thing. I, I don't think... I think the next the 2030 World Cup should be in South America, with the 100th anniversary of the first one in South America. Uh, I suspect it will be in Spain and Portugal, and I can't see any way in which they're all going to vote for us because we aren't that popular overseas, and Brexit hasn't helped. In terms of the international film, it does show the pull of the, of the international football, and I do think that... We are currently in obviously a very very difficult time with the pandemic and, and travel. International travel is you know we've seen they're just about made to keep the Champions League going with this ludicrous situation where you could get out of the way goals in a game where neither side plays at home um, <laughs> in the the Arsenal game recently, but. When those moments come, and they aren't that often, when those moments come when, you know, England, and this is, this is replicated in every country around the world, when I play in a big World Cup title, a big you know, European um, Championships match, then the, the country does come together in a way that it doesn't happen with club football. I mean, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, you know, an English team in Europe was generally supported by lots of other people in Europe. I don't think if Manchester City, for example, get to the European Cup final this year, that the whole country going to be cheering them. Yeah, you know, there's nothing personal against Manchester City. I just don't think it works like that anymore. The same would apply if any of our other teams get to the European Cup final. You know, there'll be the supporters of that club and some others cheering them on, but most people will be wanting them to lose. And that applies to whichever English Cup gets there. The only thing that really unites a country behind it in that way is international football. And that applies not just here, not just in Scotland and Wales and Ireland. It applies all over Europe, all over the world. And though that is why the draw of it, I think. However, in our current circumstances we have got a problem, obviously, with international travel and there really should have been, and this applies to the UEFA as well, the Champions League, there should be much more accommodation taken on the difficulty of travel at the moment and, and changes in uh, scheduling, changes in how matches have being decided, how qualifiers being decided, you know, much more complex. I do think football has sort of buried its head in the sand and said, oh, we're football, we're too big for this, we, who cares?
1: Yeah, I think what we're doing, we're, we're approaching a tipping point in probably, you know, the forthcoming international break. You've already got, Jurgen Klopp talking about banning his players from travelling if there's quarantine involved. He's being supported by other Premier League managers. That's pretty significant, isn't it, Rich?
2: Yeah, I think it is, and I think if if that was to happen, I think as you've rightly said, it it would be a turning point in terms of how kind of in in terms of how international breaks are viewed moving forward. You know, look, look, looking at this season and everything that's happened, especially, you know, with coronavirus and, and, and whatever, you know, the, the fix congestion that we're seeing with players, we we don't want international football to kind of lose its its sparkle and, and, and lose its kind of allure. But if, if players are going to constantly pull out, as we're seeing, let say, with Liverpool or you know, injuries, etc., then it, it, it's going to go that way. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next 10, 15 days or so. But um, I know I know you're not a massive fan of it, are you? Like uh, international breaks and stuff like that. And I can see why. Is is it's, you know, as as Glenn rightly said, you know, looking at the kind of allure and and tribalism of, of club football and, and the emotion that brings on on a weekly basis as fans, you know, something like that, that we fight for. Of course, when it comes to international tournaments over the summer, we see the country come together. It's amazing. You know, 2018 was fantastic, but those little breaks in between the season only serves to halt momentum. And especially at this stage of the season as well, where you know, you've got 10, 12, 13 games left, key injuries to, to key players would be, would be
0: disastrous. It's already happened in the women's game. Leon banned their players from leaving for the last international break. That's why Nikita Paris didn't play for England, why Khadija Buchanan didn't play for Canada, uh, because they, they obviously don't want them to come in quarantine. When they come back, they're paying their wages.
1: Yeah, well, I'm not ashamed to admit that I miss Arsene Wenger. I miss his wry humour and the occasional meltdown. Uh, I miss his humanity and intelligence. Most of all, I miss his sense of perspective. He believes FIFA should scrap international breaks and stage the World Cup every two years. Typically, he says that's an environmentally friendly solution to a growing problem in a crowded calendar. Not for the first time, I think he's spot on. What do you think please let me know in the meantime thanks to glenn and richard and to you for listening to the football writers podcast
2: Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at Oseamalibu.com.
0: That's O S E A MALIBU.com code SUMMER.
1: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life resistant, high performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley High-Performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
0: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping.